remind me when we were in Las Palmas, did you hire out one of the? Um... No, I ran away. You ran away, <laughs> so, yes. too scared and technophobic. Well, because I I saw, I saw the the bike rank outside, and then I you know thought that the the language barrier perhaps would would overcome me, and I would just start walking back. Worried about having a conversation in Spanish with a hire bike. <laughs> <laughs> I made it back before you guys did. That is very true. That's very true. That's why so... we need uh, we need more comprehensive e-scooter hire structure in London just to try and relate that back to some semblance of a policy <laughs> conversation. <laughs> Welcome to The Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Daniel Pryor and I'm the head of research at the ASI. And in this week's episode, I'm joined by my erstwhile colleague, John McDonald, the ASI's director of strategy. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the good, the bad, and the very ugly parts of this week's Queen's speech. And a general point before we talk about the contents of the speech in particular, there were a lot of bills announced. So we're not going to go over all of them because there were nearly 40 pieces of new legislation. The government clearly wants to appear very, very busy. It's worth noting that this is uh, kind of the first time that they've been able to announce a legislative session without the pandemic being the dominant factor. Uh, and it's also, unfortunately, or fortunately, in some cases, the last time they'll be able to do that, they won't get another session in before we head to the general election. So, John, let's start off, I think, in true optimistic neoliberal note by going over some of the good things. Uh, and first up, we've got the return of permanent alfresco dining. What do you make of this? Is this a, a big win for you? Did you take a lot of advantage of alfresco over the pandemic? I mean, I, I'm I'm very excited about it. We had, I suppose, the eat out to help out era, summer 2020, a lot of alfresco dining, very exciting. Soho in particular, I'm sure will look simply lovely. Um, but I, I suppose the other thing is that outside of cities it's probably not going to be felt by that many people right yeah. like i can't imagine like it, this policy benefits me and people that i know quite a lot and i think it, it definitely should be there but i can appreciate that it's perhaps not as big a, a bigger deal for others as it is for me yeah i enjoyed there that the second after you said eat out to help out there was in the background a little beep of approval from a passing motorist at the asi office or perhaps a, a black cab driver who listened to the last episode we had on our cab paper uh, i guess for for me alfresco dining definitely a, a huge win to make it permanent it should have been permanent before the pandemic and it's a shame that it took uh, a global pandemic in order for local authorities mm. and central government to wake up and smell the coffee or tapas or whatever it is that's being okay. served. Um, but I think you're right about the focus of this. It is going to be in larger cities in urban areas. And despite it being targeted at revitalizing the high street, I can't imagine some of the, the kind of smaller town sort of semi high streets are going to have this quite so much although I could be wrong I mean you know I went back home to see my parents in Essex over the weekend and they live in a, a small village in in Hockley it's not massive there is a bit of a high street and I started to see some of you know the local Costa and the local um, local cafe putting more and more chairs out and things like that but the fact is that's not it, there's not walkable towns right it's not the same sort of thing car transport is far more important uh, and far more valuable relatively outside of major cities uh, where walkability isn't so much of a concern yes no i would say it's, it's it's slightly funny to me that something that is one of the few things in fact that in in the queen's speech that isn't 
specifically about leveling up is one of the things that I'm more excited about. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't surprise me, to be fair. I think it's pretty much the same view with me. Anything that's away from this this cursed leveling up agenda is is good. Uh, and another thing that, that is not really relevant to the leveling up agenda and is therefore good is the demise of cookie pop-ups, which is something I am super excited about. It's so irritating. And if you're uh, you know, any sort of and I hate to use the phrase because it's so cringe, but digital native, someone who understands how to use their computer on a basic level, then this is fantastic news, right? It's um, it spawned from EU era legislation, very annoying. It makes using websites harder without any real benefits. There was uh, on Twitter a few days ago, an absolutely great paper in um, by the NBER that found that uh, this cookie pop-up and the GD. PR in general had an absolutely massive effect on the amount of uh, apps on the Google Play Store, uh, really huge hits to innovation and loss of consumer surplus. I think just for the cookies specifically, I think I, I remember a few, I think it was a couple of months ago, I did um, calculation off the back of an article in Spiked where the author estimated that over 5 trillion cookie pop-ups have been served to website users since this came into effect. And if you say that you know, it takes about a second to get rid of a cookie, for me, it's probably half a second, but for some people, maybe <laughs> two, three seconds, uh, that's about 160,000 years of time lost just to get rid of cookies across the EU. So huge negative impacts here. It's good that the government seems to be making at least one positive use out of the benefits of Brexit. Yeah, I mean, I, I would com- completely agree with that. For me, it, it's always, they always pop up at exactly the time that I don't want them to. You know, I'm trying to research mm. something for an article or a piece or whatever, and immediately the do you consent thing pops up. And I, I might be alone in thinking this as well, but I actually don't mind that there are cookies on websites like if they were introduced as a as a means you know the, the pop-ups as a means by which to help people feel more in control of their their privacy and their data online i i just i don't believe that that many people are worried about receiving personalized adverts based on websites that they've visited i mean I, I could be completely wrong but i actually i would prefer that i did have that than i didn't yeah i mean that's why they're introduced initially right it's to address some people's privacy concerns wanting to know if they're being tracked across different web pages and having their browsing activity tracked in some sense and i think totally fair enough and for some people that is a concern for me i don't care how many details any digital company that I have a modicum of respect for has on me. It's just not a concern for me. But I do accept, obviously, it is for some people. Um, the way to get around that, I think, is, is rather than having this kind of blanket cookie directive from, from the EU, is yeah. you make it opt out. So uh, good friend John Myers uh, wrote a substack on this recently. Uh, his substack is Ziggurat, if you're interested in reading the post. And he just basically says, one approach could be the government just give a simple web page that gives you the opportunity to opt out of cookies if you're someone that like me doesn't really care about this very much and you still have the situation where the default uh, for privacy conscious consumers and you know you could argue there's a you know an information case to be made here they can still get the cookies and you can still have the joy of, of clicking except every time you visit every website ever. <laughs> I don't want to take that away from you, John. Um, but I imagine the government doesn't either. I think they probably go for, for more of a middle ground approach rather than get rid of these things entirely. Uh, but next up in good things, um, they are, <laughs> I think it's worth saying, 
fairly small good things considering the problems that the UK is facing at the moment. But nonetheless, we'll, we'll press on with our optimism. It's the e-scooter revolution uh, gathering pace anew because up until now, it's been illegal to use uh, at least privately owned e-scooter on pavements and roads in the UK, very much out of step with our European colleagues. But it looks like they're going to change that with the transport bill. Uh, but of course, we see e-scooters for hire around London all the time, don't we, John? Is there anything that that you think needs to be kind of addressed here? Um, I can't say I've ever had a, a security problem with e-scooters particularly. I mean, the, again, could just be me, but to me, people riding bikes up and down streets is more annoying than e-scooters. It'll be interesting to see what the kind of take-up will be if if you can have private you know, private ownership and use of e-scooters. I mean, the big barrier for me at the moment is kind of seeing the, the e-scooter rank outside, but, you know, perhaps perhaps a little bit of technophobia from me. I don't know how to kind of rent one out or hire it for use during the day. So I kind of just stay away from it. But uh, if it were as simple as being able to cut my, my journey to the office down by half by uh, by hopping on my, my e-scooter, then, then maybe I would take it up and maybe more people around Westminster would take it up and we'd have a bit of a problem. But I, I honestly have no idea. Yeah, I can imagine that suits the neoliberal brand very much <laughs> to commute into the ASI on an e-scooter. Um, and I think the, the final good thing that we'll all end on is the plans, at least in part, for greater use of nuclear energy as part of the, the UK's energy security strategy. That's going to lead up to a new energy bill that was talked about in the Queen's speech. And of course, this comes in the context of the UK having even more pressure to become more self-sufficient with energy, uh, not just the, the recent volatility in, in energy markets and rising wholesale gas prices. Um, also, the, the war in Ukraine, the West dependence on Russia. Obviously, you look at the German situation where they've just shut down a ton of nuclear power plants, just as they desperately needed to increase their energy self-sufficiency. Do you think that the government is being ambitious enough with its targets. They're uh, hoping to facilitate 25% of the UK's energy demand by 2050 with nuclear, but it doesn't look like at the moment, at least, there are that many nuclear power plant projects being commissioned or, or being built. Well, I mean, that's the thing, really, isn't it? They, they're sort of laying the groundwork for that commissioning to take place. I mean, the, the wording in the, in the Queen's speech, I think, was a, a pro-innovation regulatory framework for, for building new nuclear power stations and small modular re uh, reactors, perhaps. But uh, like so many things with this government, there's there's positive noises, right? Mm. That I, I remember beforehand, the, the prime minister was saying that uh, it was time to reverse the, the decades-long mistake of reducing the amount of nuclear energy in our energy mix. But we'll have to wait and see. You know, nuclear is one of its major drawbacks is how long it takes to get it online. And so perhaps in a in a time when the government is already feeling time pressure to get a lot done it will be difficult to see whether or not they actually are cracking on with with getting those projects started or not yeah my hope with this as with many things is that government incompetence will be superseded by market innovation and you mentioned these mm. advanced modular reactors um, at various stages of technological readiness uh, some pretty much ready to be rolled out or have in fact been rolled out in different countries and I think not just in terms of them being a smaller scale um, less in terms of planning battles and in terms of initial yes. capital investment um, but also hopefully a regulatory system that's fit for them uh, to come into the market means that we will be able to, to meet this maybe not in the way that we might have thought 
10, 20 years ago with nuclear, but at least there'll be some hope of satisfying that, that base load requirement, because as we, we've spoken about in several recent papers, it's not much good to have wind and solar on the days where the sun doesn't shine and where the wind doesn't blow. And we currently, uh, in on existing battery technology, just do not have the money to, to feasibly uh, create a storage solution for just uh, wind and renewables grid. Uh, let's go on to some of the, the bad stuff now. And we're only doing half hour podcasts, so we'll have to abbreviate somewhat, sadly, uh, or <laughs> happily, uh, I should say. The energy price cap, it looks like that's going to be extended past 2023, um, was initially brought in in 2019 as a temporary measure. Uh, what's that Milton Friedman quote again? Uh, Nothing is so permanent as a temporary government program. <laughs> now, on the face of it, I imagine that the energy price cap still enjoys a fair amount of of popular support, given the huge increase that so many people have had in their energy bills. Why do you think the energy price cap is is not the way to go when it comes to cutting costs for consumers? Um, well, I think the issue with the energy price cap is that it sounds good up front, right? That the government will make sure that you can't be raked over the coals by your energy provider, um, and that there's a sort of a limit to how to how ridiculous things can get. But but what actually happens uh, with a price cap in a in an environment, I would say, where the, the wholesale price of gas is less extortionate than it has been in recent times, is that it encourages people to just stick with the provider that they're on. And so it reduces competitive pressures within the market. And then energy companies end up charging very close to, you know, as close as they possibly can to the price gap anyway. So you end up with like quite a significant homogenization of, of energy prices and people with less interest in shopping around and, and trying to find better deals here and there. And as I say, it's it would be difficult to take away the cap right now because you probably would see a big spike in prices. Mm. Uh, but the the idea that the government is wanting to continue to keep this cap, to continue to keep a situation in which there is very little competitive pressure within the market to, to provide better prices, it it speaks to a lack of interest on their part in actually solving the energy market problem. Right. And as you say, one of the main things is this this dearth of competition. And we've seen companies that, you know, weren't able to handle the the price cap effectively going under. I mean, I'm with Bulb at the moment and they're they're still thankfully keeping the lights on and powering my wonderful podcast set up here at home. But the fact is that they went under because they couldn't charge prices that uh, would yield them a profit or would allow them to stay afloat. And the other thing that I think is often overlooked with the, the price cap is that energy demand in the short run is inelastic, right? It's not easy for me at home if my energy bills go up even by a significant amount to drastically change how much energy I use over a short time period. It is possible to do that over a longer time period, you know, things like uh, insulation, for example, that take a while to get sorted out. Um, being able to set up different habits uh, with your energy use, uh, moving to lower energy products, etc. And the problem with the price cap for me is that rather than this being a gradual shift that consumers can respond to as prices gradually vary month by month, it all comes at once, right? So, you know, unless you're an avid follower of the wholesale price of gas, and that isn't the majority of the UK population, what you're going to end up seeing is you think you're going to be fine. And then one day your bill goes up absolutely massively. It's all over the news and you have absolutely no time to adjust your consumption or your energy demand in 
response to that. So all it's doing, or well, one of the things it's doing is shifting that that consumer response in big chunks rather than over time. So a serious problem comes to that. Uh, another harebrained scheme or pet project or, or fantastic idea, again, depending on your point of view, you can obviously guess mine, <laughs> is the, the Great British Railways part of the proposed transport bill. Now, this has been called, uh, I believe, by us, uh, as well as others, uh, nationalization through the back door. Um, and I can see that in our podcast notes here, uh, we've described it as straight out of the Atlee textbook. I absolutely love that. That's a great ah, description of it. The idea of being to simplify the, the rail network through basically creating a public sector body that will oversee uh, rail in Great Britain from 2023, trying to consolidate this under the, the kind of tighten central control, at least under the guiding mind of government. Do you see this as anything more than a, a pet project? What are the, the kind of major changes that you think people should look out for? You know, I haven't looked into into rail too much. My my initial takeaway from it is that it I, I don't see how it addresses the fundamental problems that we have with the rail infrastructure in this country, which is, to my mind, very extortionate prices uh, to travel on on fairly low quality trains between certain destinations so you can have a you know a fairly reasonable train from uh, king's Cock across st pancras to nottingham for example at, at 20 pounds and then a journey of the same distance on a worse train to derby is is much much more as far as i'm aware going back to kind of renationalizing the railways is a very strange pitch from the conservatives uh, in a political sense we, they spent all of 2019 leasing on about how Jeremy Corbyn was going to nationalize rail, mail and and water, I think was the were the three that they they really complained about. And then sort of coronavirus changed everyone's perspective on it, at least within the party. And then they decided that actually nationalizing the railways was a great thing and it would play well with the public that they could bang on about Great British Rail all over again. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where if it, if it looks like nationalization it smells and speaks like nationalization it's probably close yeah. to nationalization and that of course they do strenuously deny this grant chaps in a, a speech a few months ago tried, at pains made it clear that this was not actually <laughs> nationalization um presumably in front of a, a more free market sympathetic audience but the problem is that you are giving control of decisions around infrastructure, around things like ticket prices, service levels, uh, whether to close loss-making lines. You're giving that to bureaucrats and to central government and to central control rather than letting the market have a key role in that process. And the fact is that the market is better than Whitehall bureaucrats at doing these things. I understand and agree that there, there are very legitimate criticisms of the franchising system. But the solution to that is to inject some more competition. I mean, the, the classic example, and I'd very much like the ASI to do a paper on this at some point, is uh, is private sector ownership of track and train, giving uh, mm -hmm. private rail companies incentives to improve areas around their stations, etc., the track maintenance incentives, the list goes on, uh, as they do in Japan. But let's move on to probably the ugliest, I would say, uh, and part of the Queen's speech, which is something we've discussed many times, uh, certainly back in the days of, of Matthew Lesh being co-host, the online safety bill, which is a mammoth, a monstrous piece of legislation that obviously is, is still going ahead. Um, the intent being to decrease uh, our poor mind's exposure to harmful or offensive content online. 
have you got a sense of whether this is something that, that seems to be popular amongst the Tory membership? Because obviously there's a lot of red meat that was in the Queen's speech, things around privatising Channel 4, for example, uh, crackdowns on protests. But this seems a little bit less in keeping with the Tory grassroots values. Yes, I, I think the online safety question is something that the Tories felt that they could you know, get their teeth into. But understandably, it, it sort of contradicts the Conservative Party's proposed stance on freedom of speech. Um, so on the one hand, they're talking about free speech within universities, for example. And then on the other, they're proposing legislation which will, on balance, make or, or will, will reduce freedom of expression online to a significant extent on certain platforms. I mean, the issue is that the bill, I think, would require companies like YouTube, for example, to to take care of what's referred to as legal but harmful speech. Um, so they have an obligation as a company to look into and review things that are potentially harmful, the standards of which might be set by something like Ofcom. And rather than dedicate serious resources to evaluating these, you know, th- these cases on a on an individual basis, more likely than not, they'll they'll use blanket kind of brute mechanisms to make sure that it's not a problem at all, at, at the expense of people making, you know, content that that could be slightly offensive to someone somewhere, but on balance probably isn't to very many people. Mm. The, the cost that comes with a policy like this far outweighs the benefit of, you know, some marginal cases where some unpleasant content might be taken down. Yeah, I, th- I think depend. it doesn't matter what side of the culture war you're on. You can see yourself being screwed over by this, this legal but harmful uh, requirement, the duty of care that basically mandates censoring content with a, a risk of harm to a hypothetical or appreciable number of adults. You know, that's such a vague definition. If I'm someone who, say on the trans issue, if I call a trans woman a bloke, that's obviously going to be censored, I imagine, under this criteria. If I'm uh, Mm. a trans rights activist and I tweet out saying kill turfs or something, that's obviously going to fall under this definition as well. And it's not even going to be up for review. You're going to have the algorithms of social media companies kind of set to pre-censor this content um, because it has the potential to cause psychological harm to, to a hypothetical person, even if, you know, you, so say you're on a private account, I imagine, and you, you share that, then you, you'd still, even if it's only seen by people who agree with you, it, it could cause harm if it just happened to be screenshotted yeah. and, and sent to uh, the wrong DM group. But it, it's not just the, the legal but harmful stuff that I think we need to worry about. That's obviously the, the big part of this. So there's a couple of other things. The first one is how potentially undemocratic this is the index on censorship recently released a a legal briefing that i think made the point that basically the secretary of state can influence what comes under this rubric of of legal but harmful content without democratic oversight without a vote in the commons Um, and you know if we're fine now but imagine we had a a secretary of state that came in who had pretty terrible views on a particular issue uh say they were homophobic for example they could just do a a kind of online section 28 with absolutely no democratic accountability and you know you've got the the journalists who say yeah okay but this has at least got protections for journalism but you look into the detail of it and it's only journalistic content that's likely to be of interest to uk users and is reasonably considered to be UK linked journalism. So if I'm a, uh, a 
writer for Mail Online US or the New York Times, for example, I could just be censored arbitrarily and not have any of this journalistic protection. So that there's so many holes in this bill that are just not being addressed at all that I think we, we need to really seriously worry about it. And I'm glad that at least the polling shows the Tory grassroots are concerned too. But let's go on to just to finish up, I think, what was absent, what wasn't in the Queen's speech, because we got a lot, um, but it was a whole lot of nothing in many cases. The big issues related to uh, tackling the cost of living, actually reviving the UK's terrible record on growth over the past decade, the housing crisis, arguably, um, that there wasn't uh, the measures in there that really seemed to tackle this. Um, What did you see as the kind of biggest omission? That's an interesting question. I think for me, the biggest one was a lack of a serious plan uh, to deal with the business investment side of things. If you're going to talk about going for growth, about leveling up, everything like that, you want to have a serious plan about bringing the UK's investment in things like capital stock as high as you can in, in, in the sort of OECD average, right? I think before we had the super deduction policy, uh, the UK was near the bottom, if not right at the bottom of the OECD, 33 countries in business investment. Um, and then with the super deduction, we shot up quite high, uh, except there's no there's no sort of post-pandemic replacement for that policy that's being talked about yet. And that's what we're all kind of waiting on. Dan, I know you know a little bit more about that that policy than I do. What would you like to see it replaced with? Yeah, well, I mean, as you say, we had the super deduction expires April 2023. And that was a huge potential boon for business investment, uh, basically full expensing plus in terms of letting businesses claim back uh, the cost of investment against their tax bill straight away, rather than having the value of that eroded by inflation uh, and the opportunity cost. So they could have invested it somewhere else and at an interest rate on it. Uh, initially, the, the ASI's campaign on this abolish the factory tax looked very much at the, the full expensing option. If I buy some new machinery for my factory that costs half a million pounds, I can deduct the full amount of that from my corporation tax bill straight away. Um, and that costs an awful lot of money up front, um, or rather, you know, it, it loses the treasury an awful lot of revenue. And sadly, due to treasury brain, um, that is a massive concern, even though you know, there's plenty of economic evidence, uh, including from the US when they did this, that it massively boosts investment, boosts wages, boosts productivity, uh, moves us up in terms of our business competitiveness, our international tax systems competitiveness. So the way to get around that is this neutral cost recovery that we've discussed, I think, in, in previous episodes, though, first time listeners who aren't familiar, it's basically trying to do that full expensing, but still keeping Uh, the cost low over a number of years. So rather than immediately deducting the full cost, um, you continue to deduct each year a certain proportion of your initial investment from your tax bill. uh, And but you do that in a way that accounts for inflation and accounts for the interest rate um, that, that you would otherwise earn on that investment. So the idea is to kind of approximate full expensing without the treasury having to lose a huge chunk of revenue in the short term. Um, in terms of other things, I think that kind of covers the the growth aspect really well. Obviously, planning a, a, a big part of that too, and there was you know a rollback on the twenty twenty reforms. We're getting something that's far more watered down, but remains to be seen. Obviously, if it does end up being street votes, that's something the ASI has supported in the past, and it's it's definitely better than nothing. Um, but the 
the cost of living stuff, it just doesn't seem like they, they talk a big game on it. They started off in the first few sentences, or rather, uh, the Queen's speech started off in the first few sentences saying <laughs> that we're going to tackle the cost of living. This is a key issue. Um, but there doesn't seem to be anything in these 38 bills that really does that. Yes. There's sort of two camps on this. One side sort of feels that, well, why would you address the cost of living crisis in something like the Queen's speech when it's something that you would address in a, you know, in a spring statement or an autumn mm. budget? The fact of the matter is that this is a very pressing problem that's, that's facing people right now. And even if you're not going to announce, you know, changes to the benefit system in a, you know, a short term change to the benefit system, even in, a, in the Queen's speech, I understand why you might think that that's not something you'd put in there. There are still reforms that you could make uh, that would very much fit into the kind of oeuvre of what normally is in a Queen's speech, uh, one of which would be something like childcare law liberalisation. Uh, childcare is is inordinately expensive in this country. It's, it's the most expensive in Europe. And we also have some of the most restrictive rules around child to staff ratios. The big one there would be to to either get rid of ratios for children above a certain age, but also to relax them, you know, uh, for children, you know, in between one and two or, or even earlier than that in a, in a safe way and hopefully cut the cost of childcare. I think when we wrote the paper on this, we found that relaxing to a ratio of one to nine rather than one to three, which is what we have now, you could cut the cost of childcare in half. Yeah. Uh, and that would really help families where they have to choose between either spending a massive up to, I think, in, in some households, a third of your of your income is the average on childcare, or one of you doesn't work anymore and stays at home and looks after the children when you otherwise might prefer to go back to work and, and be more productive and, and have more money in, in your pocket. So it's something like that would, would have been an easy and sensible thing to mention uh, as a priority in the Queen's speech you know, the, the full policy of which could be worked out in a bill uh, over the next year. But it was a shame not to see to see sensible things like that in the, in the speech. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And it, it does seem like at least that there was previous discussion around revitalizing these efforts to reform childcare ratios and, and regulate in a way that actually puts money back in the pockets of parents who are feeling the squeeze harder than anyone else in Europe when it comes to this issue. Uh, it obviously didn't come to fruition and certainly came up against a lot of opposition when it was first really mooted um, through the backing of Liz Truss a few years back. But it does seem like, you know, what better time than now to make the case for that obviously there was some uh, some initial responses on twitter from people who are the kind of redistribution brainworm crowd who said that this wouldn't immediately impact people's incomes it would take some time etc <laughs> uh, fair enough fair point um but you know immediate redistribution is not the only way to tackle the cost of living certainly not in the medium to long term and you can also discuss things that would help in the medium to long term without ignoring things yes. like uh you know as we propose in our paper just sending direct cash payments to people on low incomes and you know you, you think about okay where's the the money going to come from for that this brings us back to the spring statement where i think we all on this podcast complained about something like the fuel duty cut as being particularly poorly targeted and costing a lot of money uh if you didn't have that fuel duty cut you'd free up billions of pounds to do something that was far more targeted but i guess you know this is in part a political incentives problem uh if you're 
on very low incomes, either you don't vote or you're very likely to not vote for the Conservatives, at least. So, you know, I, I understand from a political perspective why the fuel duty cut might have been the superior option. But obviously, the ASI, we have the privilege of uh, of not needing to depend on being re-elected to our podcast positions every time and, and we can tell it how it is. Uh, and on that note of uh, anti-democratic irritation at the government's failure, uh, I think it's probably time to bring this episode to a close. Uh, thank you very much, my colleague John McDonald, our Director of Strategy, for joining me. You've been listening to The Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. If you like what you've heard, then please do like and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider. And we will see you next week for yet more banter analysis. Mm-hmm.